You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Tanya Ramos, and I'm a clinical nurse educator for the Outreach Education Program here at RCH. I'm also a clinical nurse specialist in PACU. Joining us today is Dr. Michael Clifford, RCH consultant anaesthetist and paediatric intensivist, as well as a fellow Western Bulldog supporter. Mike's experience in both anaesthesia and intensive care makes him the perfect person to educate us on the management of paediatric laryngospasm. Welcome, Mike. I'm so happy you could join us today. Thanks, Tanya. And um, we won't be talking about the football. Not this year. (laughs) So, Mike, I want to start off by saying, I guess in my role as outreach educator for the perioperative section of our team, one of the most sought after topics for education is actually the management of laryngospasm. It's something obviously that can produce much fear and anxiety in recovery nurses, but as well as clinicians working in anesthesia, in ED and in ICE. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about laryngospasm? I think it, it induces fear in, in all of us, particularly anaesthetists have been around the traps a little bit. And we've all had our moments where we've watched the saturations and the heart rate racing themselves to zero. Yeah. And it's important to remember that you, are, you have all of the requisite skills to deal with the problem. Many, many times the problem is predictable because of the, the nature of the uh, child you have in front of you, their mm-hmm. comorbidities, um, the sort of surgery that they're having. So you know who's likely to get it. And particularly at RCH, there's always help around. Uh, it's important to remember that about a third of the cases occur at induction, and there are some risk factors for that, and about two-thirds on emergence, and about right. one in six, 10% will occur actually in recovery. So it's important for the recovery nurses to be aware of what some of the preconditions are too, and we can go into those if you like. Yeah, that, that'd be great. And can you tell us sort of how we, how we define laryngospasm? What is it character, how is it characterised? Most of the laryngospasm we see is, is easily identifiable. There are, there are some, sometimes you can get caught out, but usually it presents as sort of noisy um, or obstructed breathing. So either at the beginning of the anesthetic or towards the end after whatever airway device you've had in you take out, you notice that the child doesn't appear to be breathing normally. There might be some slightly abnormal movements or particularly paradoxical sort of uh, chest and abdominal wall breathing. If the laryngospasm is partial, you'll often have air moving through the cord. So you'll ha- usually have noisy breathing. Right. And as that noisy breathing becomes more localized to the vocal cords, you get a, a crowing or yeah. noise. That kind of high pitch yeah, kind of sound. Right. Yeah, that's right. And as it gets worse, the, the, the cords get tighter and closer together. So yeah. it starts to really squeak and then... Nothing. And nothing. Correct. Yeah. And that, that's a sign that the cords have gone from being partially open to completely closed. And when they're completely closed, there's not much you can really do about that except wait for it to, to go away, essentially. Mm-hmm. When, they, when the cords are partially open, you've got an opportunity to get some oxygen in or some air in and usually doing some basic airway opening maneuvers to facilitate any coexistent obstruction above the cords or... When they're sucking that hard, they're often collapsing the the pharynx and the the soft tissues around. So using, you know, jaw thrust type maneuvers and repositioning the head, using a little bit of CPAP, uh, they can all sort of promote opening up of that supra uh, glottic area. But if the cords are, are closing and and getting worse, then really you need to try and break that spasm. And the only way to do that successfully is is to um, use pharmacology. So yeah. IV anesthetic agents, particularly propofol, which we can talk about, or or if it's really severe and, and that hasn't worked, you might have to use 
a small dose of muscle relaxant, particularly, say, succimethonium. Right, Michael. And before we sort of continue around that path, sometimes I think clinicians, um, you know, one of the questions I get asked when we go out on the road a lot is, how do I know the difference between it being like sort of true laryngospasm versus airway obstruction or perhaps a bronchospasm? Yeah, okay. Well, look, the reality is you may not, and, and you may not be able to make that clear distinction because the, the risk factors are often very similar. So if you've got a, the younger the child, the more likely they are to have laryngospasm. Mm -hmm. Coexistence of a respiratory uh, illness, particularly chronic lung disease or ex-prematurity, um, the presence of, of a viral upper respiratory tract infection, particularly something like smoking in the home, passive yeah. smoking, all of these things set the child up for airway irritability. And the airway irritability can present as laryngospasm or yeah. as bronchospasm. Mm -hmm. If a child has gastroesophageal reflux, that can occur at the end of theatre and that can precipitate laryngospasm or bronchospasm. So it is quite difficult to identify exactly what's going on. But fortunately, the acute management is very similar in all cases. It's important to remember that laryngospasm is actually a, it's a protective reflex that um, is there all the time. And it, it's to stop you from drowning and probably during the birth canal, you don't want yeah. to be aspirating all the maternal secretions or blood. And then as you get older and further away from birth, the reflex gets more dampened, but mm -hmm. doesn't disappear entirely. That's why this problem is much more common in children, infants, neonates than it is in adults. I mean, it's Correct. And that was my next question. Is that why yeah, then it's yeah. more prevalent? Probably, um, probably. It has a higher sort of incidence. It's that kind of flight or fight response. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the airway that's designed to protect itself from um, secretions and other things. And if you think about it, a, a baby has to breastfeed mm -hmm. and while it's breastfeeding, it's got to breathe. Correct. And so the, the larynx of a baby is designed to channel uh, breast milk around the back of the, of the laryngeal inlet and go down the esophagus and mm -hmm. then they instantly take another breath. So if they accidentally get breast milk in the posterior part of their vocal cords, where mm -hmm. most of the vagal nerve uh, sensory fibers are, they'll stop breathing, sit up and cough and gag. And because they're awake, they won't have severe laryngospasm and um, become hypoxemic. Yeah. But if you're, if you combine that with a decent dose of anesthetic agent, so they're partially unconscious, well, they don't have the capacity to break their own reflex. So the reflex becomes more profound and continuous. And that's why you end up with a child that's desaturating and becoming bradycardic, yeah. which is probably another protective reflex when you're profoundly hypoxemic your body slows your heart rate right down to minimize your cardiac output. There used to be a rule that, you know, before your heart stops, your vocal cords will open. That's not necessarily a good treatment for laryngospasm, <laughs> no. but it, it's, a, it's something to remember that, yeah. you know, these are reflexes and these mm -hmm. reflexes will eventually stop. Our job as clinicians is to, is to minimize, uh, that, that outcome. And the earlier we get in and break the reflex, the, the less likely we are to have significant desaturation yep. or some of the uh, acute problems related to severe upper ear obstruction. Well, that's really what clinicians worry about, it, isn't it? That immediate sort of profound desaturation, potential bradycardia. And so, as you mentioned, intervening quite early is actually a key point to management. You talked about risk factors before in the sense of patient risk factors, but I wonder if you could take us through um, some of the anaesthetic or surgical risk factors that make it, you know, a higher chance for children having um, laryngospasm. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. We talk about the experience of the anaesthetist as being one of the big risk factors. 
and I guess experienced anaesthetists don't necessarily have less laryngospasm, but what they do is they prepare their anaesthetic in such a way to minimise that risk and they tend to intervene earlier, but perhaps more gently to minimise the problem getting worse. So the biggest risk factor is having a senior person in the room. Then, of course, there's specific anaesthetics. So if you're operating in the airway, so ENT type procedures, it's much more likely. Those are the, the risk factors. Strong vagal stimuli can precipitate it too. So in adults, anal surgery is is a common cause and cervical surgery in women can also oh. precipitate laryngospasm. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. And, and, and in children, it's it's often urological procedures too, like circumcision, any inguinoscrotal um, operations are also at increased risk. But ENT is the big one. That's the, right. the top of the tree. And that that's not surprising because you're operating the tonsils or the adenoids, and you've got mm-hmm. blood and secretions which will pool in the back of the throat, and they will tend to be more likely to uh, trickle down and irritate that posterior part of the larynx. So yeah. obviously you're set up for that to occur. Mm-hmm. We talk about you know the risk factors of putting in tracheal tubes versus l- laryngeal masks, and it sort of depends on on which part of your anaesthetic you're talking about. So the data's it's a bit mixed, and you've got to, you've got to sieve through it. But if you're going to use a mask anaesthetic or a laryngeal mask, you're mm-hmm. more likely to get your laryngospasm at the start. Right. Whereas if you put a tracheal tube in, you're much more likely to get your laryngospasm at the end. At the end, on the extubation. Yeah. Right. How you how you handle airway instrumentation and the depth of anesthesia that you have before you do that is probably the biggest predictor for whether or not you get laryngospasm. So if you look at more senior pediatric anaesthetists, when at the end of the operation, when they're taking out their airway, they'll often look for signs that suggest the child's um, deep enough for that tube to come out. Mm-hmm. So there's a few little things we do. I mean, Phil Rag's got Rag's rule number 275, which <laughs> is... He's always got his rules. Yeah, when you when you when if you wiggle the tracheal tube and the child stops breathing and then starts breathing straight away, that's a sign that they're, they're probably entering a phase where you can take the tube out. If you wiggle the tube and they stop breathing and they have a breath hold, yeah. that's a sign not to pull not that to. tube out. George Chalkiartis has got his little sort of jaw wiggle and if you wiggle the... Yeah give your little finger a, a wiggle on the angle of the jaw. If they mm-hmm. don't move their feet, they're probably deep enough either for a tube to go in or come out. Yep. You, that's the plane of anesthesia they're in. Often it's it's how you do that. So some anesthetists will put a whole lot of air into the patient. So they'll do yep. they'll do their ex, extubation on exhalation yep. so that the child will cough. Because it's actually, very, it, this is a, a reflex. It's much more likely on inspiration, right. which makes sense. If you're going to suck material into your lung, that's when you're that's likely when you to get this, this, right. this glottic closure. Whereas if you're in the process of breathing out, it, the reflex is less likely to occur. So you'll often see um, the senior guys doing who do a lot of ENT, they'll often pull the tracheal tube out as the child's breathing out as a way of sort of protecting them. So there's there's little subtleties yes. that like that that take a long time to teach yourself. And we sort of learn on the job. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why junior people probably get in, themselves into trouble because they don't necessarily have that... Uh, sense of what's going on in the patient. Well, that makes total sense. And um, just let me ask you just in regards to that. So then does that mean that most or some anaesthetists, will they pre-oxygenate sort of before extubation? Yeah, usually. Yeah. usually I mean, again, this is it's all, this is all, you know, do you cook Italian or Greek and yeah. how do you, do you <laughs> garlic or olive oil? So some yeah. anaesthetists like to have 100% oxygen in the lungs before they take their tube out and will even, if they've been had a volatile-based anaesthetic, they'll often mm. give a little bit of propofol just before they right. take their tube out to blunt the reflexes. Um, other anaesthetists prefer to have an air-oxygen mix in the lungs so that they don't get absorption atelectasis. So, because if the, as the oxygen gets absorbed, if there's no nitrogen, the lungs will collapse and then you'll get shunting and then you'll get hypoxemia. So there's right. sort of ways, there's way, lots of ways to land the plane. Yeah. Uh, Such a great analogy. Yeah. Well, it's so, yeah. you know, it, it, do you want to come in hard and fast or do yeah. you want to float very gently down yeah. the runway? It's it, it, And again, that sort of depends on things like, well, 
am I on my own? Mm-hmm. Um, what resources what do you resources have, have I having available? Have I got someone who can hand me drugs that I might need very quickly? If I've got propofol, will I give a little bit now or I have the syringe in my hand or is it over there on yeah. the other side of the room? The, these are the sorts of things where you might tailor what you're doing so that you've got a child who sort of, the tube is coming out and they're relatively deep and they're breathing nicely and constantly. If you've, if you've done airway surgery, mm-hmm. you will have want to have aspirated or suctioned out that area of the yeah. um, airway before you pull the tube out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you haven't done anything to the upper airway, you, you may not want to risk putting in a suction catheter and suctioning anything out because that may because just irritate risk. them. Yeah. yeah. So, but as a general rule, a nice, clean, dry airway before you move your tube mm-hmm. out, uh, you're much less likely to have uh, material landing on your cord. If you've found out after intubating the child for whatever procedure you're doing that this child has a viral lung infection and yeah. you're now discovering that, mm-hmm. well, then you might wait a lot longer before you take the tube out. That mm-hmm. might be one of Pete Howe's, if in doubt, let the patient take the tube out. So you yes. might, they rather than trying to be clever and doing it deep, that might be a patient that you would let the tube come out when they're awake. When they're fully awake. The difficulty there is you may have a child who's waking up with an irritable airway mm-hmm. who's now cough, 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 coughing. And they don't stop coughing until their tube comes out and you're stuck in that, in that boggy ground of, well, do I leave it in or do I take it out? And often it has to come out eventually and yeah. it's, and how you minimize that airway irritability. And the answer is almost always mm-hmm. a bit of propofol. Yeah. Um, so it's how you tailor that, tailor that to the, to the child. Because it seems like really that propofol sort of is the, the, almost the magical cure for laryngospasm. Yes. Yes, it is. And I'll go on record at saying, saying that here. There's, I mean... We are lucky. We, we live mm-hmm. in a world where there, we have sevoflurane, which is a very non-irritant, um, mm-hmm. volatile anesthetic. And you can certainly have a much cleaner anesthesia using sevoflurane uh, than, say, in the old days when we used isoflurane maintenance, which was much more yeah. irritating. I think most of us now have gone or are going mm-hmm. uh, over to a TIVA-based technique yeah. where we use a lot more propofol and remifentanil, both of which are quite good at blunting airway yeah. reflexes. And that's why we've moved towards using them. Yeah. And uh, we know that from the literature that the that a propofol fever type technique is much less likely to give you laryngospasm. It doesn't yeah. eliminate it entirely, but it makes it less likely. Less likely. And the other beauty is that that when you've got someone who's having laryngospasm, as their airways close, mm-hmm. well, there's no way you can get volatile into them anyway. Yeah. So you're going to have to use propofol at that point. At so that point, yeah. Um, that's why it's the sort of the drug of first choice as far as I'm concerned, yeah. both for maintenance and rescue. No, that makes um, complete sense. And if we're sort of moving into the, I guess, the treatment of laryngospasm, we've obviously talked about the role of propofol. When, say, for example, you've got a child that is rapidly desaturating, becoming bradycardic, you know, the anaesthetist, you're, you're obviously a senior anaesthetist with us, when would be the time that you think, wow, we need to come here and either maybe the propofol isn't being effective? When would be the time that you would be considering, I guess, reintubation? Um, because reintubation sort of in the recovery unit is actually quite rare. We tend to have about one or two a year. And if mm. we do about 15,000 patients, you know, that's actually really quite rare. Mm. But obviously more more prevalent, I guess, intraoperatively something that we wouldn't see in recovery. Yeah, look, I think yeah, this is very interesting. I think if you walked around the theatres, if we had a camera mm-hmm. in every theatre all the time, you'd see an awful lot of laryngospasm with the consultants. Yeah that never quite makes it to the nine o'clock news. And the reason is that the consultants are, first of all, more tolerant of a little bit of airway obstruction. Mm -hmm. They're also more tolerant of a little bit of desaturation. Um, And they're more comfortable with supporting an airway that's a bit borderline and just Mm -hmm. waiting. So if you watch most of the senior guys and girls managing upper airway obstruction where that's, it's that partial 
laryngospasm or it's bordering on getting worse, mm-hmm. they'll put oxygen, 100% oxygen, they'll get the CPAP on early, yep. they'll move the airway into a, a more open position. Mm-hmm. You'll often see them uh, potentially using their little finger to really push hard on the angle of the jaw mm-hmm. and there's a I'll, there's a little trick to that which I'll go to. But they're, And then they'll just they'll just sit yep. right? and they'll just wait and they'll hold pressure in the bag mm-hmm. and if they feel the child making a little bit of inspiratory effort, you'll see them just gently squeeze that yes. bag and try and get a little bit of oxygen into the baby because they know that I just need to wait it out, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. So that's probably that probably covers a lot yeah. of sins. And there's probably, you know, I'm not going to say most, but I reckon two-thirds of patients, that would be all that you mm-hmm. would ever see. Yes. You know, if there was a, a, a registrar in that room or a junior fellow or someone who mm-hmm. wasn't that confident, they might try and go out of their way to improve that situation mm-hmm. and then things start to spiral. So they're trying to ventilate a little bit hard. They might start to blow up the stomach. They're constantly moving the head and neck to try and get a better position, try and yeah. get a better position. They're getting a Goodell. They're putting in a Goodell. They're doing a whole lot of interventions to try and make things better. And what they're potentially doing is just losing ground. Yeah. Right? It's sort of snowballing. It does. And, and, and then all of a sudden you've got a child who's profoundly desaturated mm-hmm. and they're starting to become bradycardic and hopefully by now they've hit the bells. Yeah. So I, I reckon a consultant would, would call for help if they've got CPAP going and they're getting no airway movement yeah. and they don't have any people in the room to help them. They would say, oh, can you call for help now? Yeah. And all they want is someone to come in the room and give the propofol because yeah. their hands are full, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll look at, look at you as you walk in the door and you know, there's an instantaneous understanding of, yeah, you know, of what's I just going want on. you to do something. Yeah. Correct. And that's all you need. If it's a more junior person, you may be entering that room a couple of minutes later where mm-hmm. you've already burnt that bridge and now you really are in a position where, oh, you really need to get on and get yep. some air, air into this yep. baby. And you need to take over at that point. Yeah. Well, sometimes yep. we would take over. Sometimes we would say, your airway looks okay. I, the mm-hmm. chest is, the baby's still trying to make some effort. We might be able to get around this. Or if it's a consultant holding the head end, mm-hmm. you might say, I'll just give a little bit of propofol and see where we are. Yeah. And if it's, if it's well beyond there and we're bradycardic and people are getting ready to do CPR, well, you might jump that step and say, Let, let's just give a small dose of succinethonium. Yeah. And, um. With the hope that that's obviously going to break that, yeah, um, spasm. Yeah. If it hasn't, if the spasm hasn't, um, relieved or the reflex hasn't mm-hmm. relaxed enough with say half a milligram or one milligram per kilogram of propofol, mm-hmm. then going into a phase where your saturations are getting worse or your heart rate's starting to slow, you, you're now you're in the stage, and this is pretty uncommon. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't remember the last time I had to give sucks in anger like this. Yeah. It'll be once in the last 10 years. Yeah. And th- But you only need to give a small dose. Now, you give a small dose of sucks because you don't necessarily need to be completely paralyzed, mm-hmm. and the laryngeal muscles are very, very sensitive to a little bit of, of muscle relaxant. So even though giving a big dose works quicker, yeah. Giving a small dose works enough because you it's only, effective. That's right. So you just give a tiny little bit of succinethonium. You might only need to give 0.1 or 0.2 per kilo, mm-hmm. just just a little bit. Yeah, and that'll be enough to 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 enable you to provide some ventilation and some oxygenation, and, it, and it, things turn around very quickly. Yep. Um. So there's a couple of other tricks you can have. So in some places, they actually, when they've got bradycardia, they start CPR quite early, mm-hmm. and they do very slow chest pushes. Right. And they're not trying to provide cardiac output. What they're doing is they're trying to actually force expiration. And the the lungs sense that forced expiration right. with a reflex that opens up the larynx. Yeah. So they, that's a trick right, yeah. that, that some places do. There's not a lot of published evidence mm-hmm. on that, but that's certainly described. Yeah. And the other thing that's described is is what's called Larson's manoeuvre, which is where yes, you... Yes, you said you were going to tell yeah, us about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you, in between the mastoid process and the angle of the jaw is the styloid, and mm-hmm. that's that a lot of the cranial nerves run past that point. Mm-hmm. 
And if you put your finger in there and push hard enough, you can often induce breaking of the laryngospasm. So that's, that's, yeah, that's been around for a long time. And, yep. and, and that's people who are, you're basically doing the same maneuver to open mm-hmm. the airway, which is a jaw thrust with your yep. little finger. But if you push your little finger in just that little bit harder and, mm-hmm. and give it a, a, a little rub, you can often cause the baby to suddenly seem to be waking up and trying to take a breath on their own. So it's right. almost like you're, you're bypassing the whole reflex by waking the baby oh, but up. Waking them up completely. Yeah, I've seen that work a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen actually Dr. Frawley do that once or twice. <laughs> yeah, so, so and that's the other that's the other reason why it seems worse for the juniors and they seem mm-hmm. worse. It's actually because the seniors are doing a whole lot of things to keep themselves out of the paper. Correct. And um it's fun it's you know interesting actually that you say that because we do see, you know, when our, we have our new registrars and our new fellows, mm. because we audit all our patients in recovery, we do, and obviously the uh, buzzer presses, mm. we do say that every time there is a new group coming in, there is a little bit of spike in airway emergencies uh, throughout the unit, both in anesthesia and then um, in recovery. So it's great that you mentioned that as well. Now, our patient has, um, you know, magically recovered after all the interventions from a laryngospasm. Now, can you tell us, is there anything, you know, because this is something also that we get asked a lot when we're providing education, is there any special um, sort of treatment or greater length of stay or does that depend on how bad the spasm was and what the intervention um, is? Could you run us, talk us through that, please? Yeah, I think that's exactly as you say. It's sort of, it, it depends on how bad things have been. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, some consultants would hand over a patient in recovery and they may not even mention that there was a bit of laryngospasm mm-hmm. at the end if, if, if in their mind it was just a bit of a rough landing. Right. Or they might say something like, I had to give a little bit of propofol at the end because there was a bit of noise. And mm-hmm. that, that, might be, that might be it. Because yeah. essentially it, it, the problem has now gone away. Correct. If the child had to have muscle relaxants at the very end, you may want to be sure that they've completely worn off. And mm-hmm. the beauty of succimethonium in most people is that they do wear off completely, but you, you want to make sure the child gets back to normal strength. If a child's had a significant episode of laryngospasm requiring, say, CPR, mm-hmm. well, that that's a whole other kettle of fish. Yes. And, and often if they've been so obstructed in that early phase, making a lot of inspiratory effort against a closed glottis or a, mm-hmm. a partially obstructed airway before help was called for, those children can often have what's called negative pressure pulmonary edema. They yes. have a little bit of fluid transudate mm-hmm. into the alveoli and the airway, and it takes uh, a couple of hours for that to clear. Right. Usually... That, that will be obvious when you take them into recovery mm-hmm. because they'll be desaturated or if mm-hmm. they've had to be re-intubated, you'll have pink frothy sputum yes. coming up. Fortunately, the application of a little bit of PEEP or CPAP and over time that melts away quite quickly because most of our children have got normal hearts and a normal Correct. vascular system, so they just get better. If they've had a, a coexistent aspiration event or aspiration mm-hmm. was the trigger for the laryngospasm to begin with, yeah. they may need some supplemental oxygen for a period of mm-hmm. time after in recovery. Yeah. And, the, and you'll know that in recovery because every time you take the oxygen off, they desaturate. Correct. Now, we know from, say, the aspiration literature that it, it's not worthwhile doing an x-ray until about four to six hours um, because it's only really children who still have uh, x-ray abnormalities at that point that warrant admission overnight for observation. Right. Most children... When you x-ray them at four to six hours, mm-hmm. certainly if they they don't need any supplemental oxygen, they'll have cleared their microaspiration mm-hmm. or whatever, and their chest will be clear and they can go home. Yeah. Uh, children that have had significant um, alveolar edema who may need to go to ICU, and we probably get one of those a year yeah, or thereabouts. that's correct, yeah. They need, they need time in ICU. They're often extubated in ICU within about four to six hours as well. They mm-hmm. don't, it doesn't take them very long to get better because it's all just um, transudate from the lung into the alveoli. And it, it's actually a response of 
probably a high afterload because of that negative pressure that they're generating. So their left ventricle just sort of uh, has a, a brief period of increased work and they get some um, alveolar edema. And then as their heart recovers, once the airway obstruction has gone, yeah. they rapidly clear. So Assuming it's they've just got no time, it, there's no other intervention no. usually. It's just time. Almost never. No, never. they, they yeah. I mean, if they're in ICU on mm -hmm. a ventilator, yeah. they might need a little bit of sedation, but mm -hmm. then that's turned off and their chest x-ray is clear and their oxygen supplementation come down to normal. We'll just extubate them. Right. Very rarely they might get a, a dose of diuretic, but again, that's largely for the pulmonary vasodilator effect of the furosemide rather than the fact that they're fluid overloaded, which they're almost always not. Um, right. So if they don't have any other comorbidities that, that might make us nervous about just sending them to the ward, they'll almost all get extubated. Yeah. And, and So fit, healthy soon. children, tube out, and then, you know, some time, yeah. tube out, and then up to the ward. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. And, and you know, as I said, like 99.9% .9 of these kids, will have, all of that will have occurred in recovery very mm -hmm. quickly, yeah. and they'll be on their way to the ward end or home or stage two. Um, despite how terrible they might have looked at, at the worst, they often recover very, very quickly. Yeah. Mike, so much amazing points we've learnt today. Definitely, I've learnt so much more about laryngospasm just by um, speaking to you today. If you could give us one or two take-home messages, what would they be today? I would say try and identify who you think is most at risk. So mm -hmm. if you've got a list coming, this is I'm speaking to the anaesthetist, yep. if, you, if, you've got, if you know you've got a, a younger child having airway surgery with coexisting morbidities like viral infections or smoking at home, I'd be cautious and I'd always have a little bit of propofol drawn up. I'd work out what, what airway choice you're going to use. So if you're going to put a laryngeal mask in at the start, make sure they're deep when it goes in. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if you've put a tracheal tube in that you're going to take out at the end, make sure they're relatively deep with a nice clean airway when you take it out. If it looks like they're developing laryngospasm after the tube comes out, move quickly to provide an open airway and provide CPAP quickly and then do as little as possible and just wait. Some people have described it as the no-touch technique. If yes. you take the tracheal tube out and everything's good, don't do anything. One of the first things you see juniors doing is they go to start moving the head and make the head Correct. even better, even better, and then yeah. you just want to smack the hands and say, just leave the <laughs> just child Just leave alone. the child be. Yeah. That's so true. So get ready for the no-touch technique. And I think that if, you've, if that's not what's happening and you do have laryngospasm, I'd get CPAP on early. And call for help early. So I think if you're if you're on your own or you're mm -hmm. a junior, the application of a CPAP to to improve the airway, to improve the oxygenation, that's also a sign that you should call for help mm -hmm. because you you need you might need someone who can give you assistance to either put a put some propofol in, or if they don't have any IV, or get IV access, get or, IV access, so important, or, or potentially draw up some succinamethonium to give you intramuscularly. But if you can get to that CPAP stage. Uh, about 70% of the time you'll turn it around there without having to give any anything more. Yeah, perfect. And I think, you know, I, I guess the take-home message would be if you're assisting the anaesthetist mm -hmm. and you're working in recoveries, have all your available resources sort of, you know, near you, making sure that, you know, you've checked your T-piece or your um, air viva, ensure that you've got, you know, sort of thinking ahead that potentially laryngospasm can occur in every patient, uh, on yes. every child that we look after. Yep. So that preparation is really important. Your suction, the correct size face markers, simple things, you know, that um, actually make a big difference. Would you agree? Yeah, I do. And I think that the change in the last 20 years has been very much that we we take children out to recovery with laryngeal mask airways. Yes. And, um, which, is, which is good because... They usually come out when the child's awake and therefore they're not likely to get laryngospasm. But while they're sitting there not awake with the laryngeal mask in, they can have little micro aspirations or they can have stuff trickle around the mask and they will develop laryngospasm with the LMA in. So identifying the fact that the child who's 
beginning to look like they've got labored breathing with an LMA in, mm-hmm. or they're starting to desaturate with an LMA in, that would be a, uh, a signal to me to maybe think about, could this be laryngospasm occurring underneath the LMA and I'll, um, evaluate my patient, maybe take my LMA out and, yeah. and get some CPAP going. I know, you know, working in recovery, sometimes mm. that's a question, you know, you sort of quickly ask yourself and the more experience that you have, you sort of just take it out. Correct. But sometimes like I know our junior yeah. um, nurses are a bit reluctant, like, oh no, but the LMA is in. And I'm like, the LMA can actually be the problem. problem. That's exactly right. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much today for your time, Mike. No we have learned so much and um, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat.